Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 282 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. And I'm here with author and all-round awesome chick, Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm awesome. <laughs> and all-round awesome at that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But you know who else is awesome? Who? An avid listener from Colorado in the US who kindly left us a review and rating on iTunes. They left us a five-star review and that this is what they said. They said, I'm a Finnish writer residing in the US and I'm so happy that I found Val and Al. As I tend to write my historical fiction in Finnish, joining a local writers group is not really an option as no one would be able to read my writing, let alone give me <laughs> feedback. But each week, I get tips from Val and Al and the authors they have on the show to make my writing better. I love the wide variety of authors that you interview. It has really opened my eyes to the fact that each of us has a different process, background and timeline to publication. And that's okay. You make me learn and laugh out loud at the same time. Thank you for all you do. It's much appreciated from Annie. Oh, how cool is that? That's really international. Oh, look, you know, um, what can I say? We are crossing borders. Yeah, we are demolishing borders. And in saying that, let me just say this: I think there's actually, I think we actually have a couple of uh, Finnish listeners. I know that sounds a bit weird, but you know, we get the really? stats every once in a while of where people are downloading. Yeah, I just wanted to say to Annie that it might be worth saying hello in the "So You Want to Be a Writer" Facebook yes. community group because you might actually find that there's a few of you there that you could make mm, your own writing online group. writing group in Finnish and in Finnish. And swap your stuff yes. around and do it that way because that's often a great way to find people. Anyway, yeah. that's just a thought. But, yeah, thank you so much, Annie. I really, really appreciate the review and so lovely that you reached out to us. And now we know you're there in yes. Colorado writing in Finnish. I love it. Really appreciate it. And, of course, if any other listeners have 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it because it helps us in the rankings. Now, did you know, Al, that I was once the voice of a Finnish company? Val, the <laughs> things that you were once the voice slash face slash whatever for just never can, just never ever stops astonishing me. No, I did I not like, know that. Because before Siri was invented, I was like Siri for voicemail. <laughs> oh, that's right. I remember. I was going to say I remember have this vague memory of you being a voice, you know, on a you know press one for yeah, more press options. One. I was the one that said press one, you know, for like for Planet Hollywood, press one for burgers and stuff like that. But anyway, this Finnish company got me to do their voicemail, and um, they Did you had just speak to in ha- Finnish. No, but all their names were really, really, really hard to pronounce. So I had to have a whole session just being coached in how to pronounce their names. So it was really bizarre. <laughs> I yeah. When did you fit that in? Like really? Like we <laughs> talked about how you were the this, or you were the accountant, and then you went to the PR, and then you went to the magazines, and then you went to when? At what point were you doing this? You must well, have been ten. No, no. What they used to do because they used to do oh heaps and heaps of companies, but they would write the script. And they would, in those days, because it was that long ago, fax it to me at my home because I had a fax at home, um, which was like really normal to me because I grew up with a fax. And um, so they would fax it to me at home and I would be able to, they set it up so I could rec- I could just ring a number and record it all through the phone. But how did you get into this? Oh, I was. How I- did you become <laughs> the voicemail girl? I, I'm just trying to imagine what career path would take you okay. at, in that particular direction. So weird. I know because I was the voice for Estee Lauder and um, all these companies, right, that that are famous and also non-famous ones. And it happened because I liked this sandwich from this particular cafe. Right. <laughs> I can't even remember what was on the sandwich. But when I like something, I just eat it all the time. And so I used to go to this cafe every day practically. And one day I just walked into the cafe and the guy who used to make my sandwich would say to me, um, he said to me, oh, hi, um, one of my customers is looking for a lady with a nice voice. 
Are you serious? I'm serious. Can you can you please go and be their voicemail girl? And God knows what they were telling the sandwich guy about, like that they were looking for this person. But they were in the the office next door to the in the building next door to the sandwich guy. So he said, "Yeah, just go see him." So I wandered next door, and I ended up being, yeah, the voice of hundreds and hundreds of companies. That's extraordinary. What a convoluted story. What I, what I find interesting about this is the notion that you walking up to a counter and saying, I'll have a tuna on rye with capers and mayonnaise was enough for this guy to go, you should totally be in voice recording. But not only that, I would – You clearly I, ordered your sandwiches very seductively, Valerie. That's no, all but, I'm saying. But here's the thing, because it was the same sandwich every day, I never had to say that. Like he'd just see me and know what I would. So you've, what you've said this once, and then all you've said is, "Bye, you know, thanks very much. See you tomorrow." And from that, you've ended up with a. Oh, I look honestly, you live under some form of strange, charmed cloud. It's bizarre. It's bizarre. I think it's what you put out there in the universe, though, because prior to that, I really wanted to be the voice of a GPS. Right. You know the the GPS because I heard that I do. you know Kiefer Sutherland was and stuff. Anyway, yeah. we are gone talking way too long about this, <laughs> so let's move on. It's just ridiculous. No, well, no, because I think it's really ready. interesting for people to hear <laughs> how strange, convoluted career paths come about, and I think you're right. I think what you put out is really important. Yeah, yeah, put it out there because, yeah, you just never know what's going to come back. Let's move on instead to a couple of links that we've got this week. Um, The first is from your friend and mine, Tristan Banks. It is from your friend and mine, Tristan Banks. So Tristan Banks um, at tristanbanks.com. He is, of course, um, a a great Australian kids and teen author. He has a fantastic um, author website. So yeah, if you are, in fact, you know, building an author website or you would like to see how one is done very well, have a look mm. at his because he has these great little videos that he does and, mm. um, you know, his, he has uh, his partner, his wife is a, is a photographer so, and he's an incredibly photogenic guy and he has acting experience as anyone who ever watched Home and Away or whatever it was 8,000 years ago would know. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, he's got this terrific online presence. but. Yeah. The reason I wanted to talk about him today was a um, a link that he or a blog post that he wrote this week. He has a new book coming out um, in the near future, um, which I think is called Detention. I think yes, what it detention. Is. It's detention. Yes, detention. Um, and he's written a post about creativity. Um, now I know he is a very big fan of Austin Kleon, who yeah. we have talked about on the on the podcast before, um, who does a terrific. Um, newsletter on creativity and Tristan's post this week is actually based you know was was sparked by um, an interview with Austin Cleon who talked about the importance of wandering and discovering and and how that impacts on his day and um, Austin Cleon said as long as I write in my diary publish a blog post take a walk and read a book that's been a good day now Mm. for me that would be an awesome day but I have a thousand (laughs) other things to do as well as does Tristan and as Tristan said you know Austin probably does as well Um, but he talks about the importance um of, of, you know, the daily walk in his life. And we have, of course, spoken to Tristan in the past who talks about, who talked mm-hmm. about how he will walk along the beach um, and he will type, you know, 2,000 words into his phone as he yep. walks. And, with his thumbs. Uh, with his thumbs. And there is actually <laughs> a photo of him on this particular blog post doing just that. Um, mm. But he talks about the importance of getting out into the world and creating space and time in your routine to do these kinds of things. Um, and we, of course, have talked about the importance of that on creativity in the past, of the the notion that sitting at your computer, staring at your Word doc or your um, whatever, how, whatever format you choose to write in is actually not the best way to get the words to flow they are the it's the best way to get the words down it, i would mm. i would say i mean i cannot type and walk at the same time as tristan no. can but so much of what happens in a story and so much of what happens in the progress of a story is done away from the computer um mm. and it's 
you know, sometimes I think, and and Tristan talks about, you know, he has a lot of business of writing stuff to take care of these days because he's, you know, he's a successful author. He does an awful lot of travel. You know, he is a room to read ambassador. He does funding applications, writing talks, you know, edits, contracts, all of the various things that he does. He has a family and also having a life. Um, But he talks about the fact that you, you need to make sure that all of that stuff doesn't, as he puts it, eat the thing that you loved about writing in the first place, which is mm. is that dreaming, thinking, making up stories, getting the words down, the actual fun of writing. And I think um, when you're in the middle of a manuscript, and I'm in the middle of one right now, um, so I can actually attest to this, you know, the fun of writing can be a little bit lost in the in the need to you know, the drive to, yeah. to get the thing down and to get it finished, you know, the imperative, the publishing imperative, as I call it. But sometimes I think it's really important to put that aside and try to get back to what it is that you love about writing in the first place. And I, I think when you're writing your first manuscript, when you don't have someone waiting for it, when you don't have yeah. a thousand, I mean, you've, you've got a day job, you've got a family, I understand all of those things. But when you actually come to the writing the writing is is there for its own sake. And I think if you can remember that and if you can tap back into that fun of writing aspect of it, it does allow your creativity to flow so much better. So I just wanted to draw attention to Tristan's uh, post and I will put the, the links in the show notes, obviously, but it's at tristanbanks.com um, on his blog. And I think it's really worth having a read and just remembering the importance of having the space and time to to sit with your work and to, to get the work thought about and, and written. Absolutely. And in, in fact, schedule it in your day if you mm. find it hard to do it. Prioritise it. A priority. It. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So our next link is from The Right Life and it's called Five Smart Ways to Stay Afloat During a Freelance Writing Slump. That's a good one, Al. Why'd you pick this one? Well, I picked it just because I think, um, you know, obviously you and I are part of many different freelance writing groups and um, if there's Mm. one thing that we both understand, it is the ebb and flow of freelance writing life, which is, you know, it's often feast or famine. You'll be doing eight million things and then suddenly, you know, you look around and the next thing is not quite here or perhaps, you know, the payments on some of the things have been slow and you're sitting there thinking, oh, now how am I going to eat? And Mm. I think that – learning to manage that ebb and flow and to manage that feast or famine um, aspect of freelance writing life is a very important aspect of running a freelance writing business Um, and remembering that you are running a freelance writing business. And this, um, I I found a link on the rightlife.com, which is called Five Smart Ways to Stay Afloat During Freelance Writing Slump. And I just thought um, it's a a US-based article, so our US listeners will uh, we'll be able to just like go in there and it, it, they're very simple tips. Um, and Australian writers, I think it's worth having a look at as well. Um, there is some tax information in it, which obviously does not relate to the uh, Australian writers, you know, or, or international writers outside the US um, directly, but it's still a good reminder to talk to your accountant and to remember that you mm. need to keep money aside for tax and things like that. So basically the tips that they that they give us are not to spend everything you've got. And mm-hmm. I think sometimes when you're in the middle of a feast, it's kind of like it's easy to kind of get carried away and be all like, yeah, I can totally do that and I can avoid yeah. that. Be forgetting sometimes that, you know, it can dry up very quickly if if the money that you're expecting doesn't necessarily turn up when you expect it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second one is to prioritise creating an emergency fund. And that was something that I always, when I was freelance writing full time, I was always very, very careful to keep that um, to keep that money aside. I, I tried to keep at least a month's worth of expenses aside mm. just so in case. You just never know when, yep. you know, you might be in a regular gig with a with a publication that suddenly stops or, you know, as I said, pay, payments aren't, don't always turn up when you expect them. So um, an emergency fund is important. Uh, savings are important. Um, they did uh, raise an interesting little thing which I didn't know about, which is a uh, an automatic savings app, which uh, they call it's Digit or Digit, I don't know how you pronounce it, which mm-hmm. stows away tiny increments of cash into a separate invisible account, which helps you 
save without even realising it, um, which I thought was a really interesting approach. Like I, I've never used it, but I, I didn't realise that those things were even available. So mm. um, that was interesting for me. Um, not to forget your tax. And this is a really big thing, particularly if you're in Australia and you have to, you know, account quarterly. Um, it's really, really important with your bass and everything like that to make sure that you've got that PIYG or whatever it is that you've got to pay aside, you yeah. do not want to end up behind by a quarter because the minute you end up behind by a quarter, it just tends to snowball and you're in a mess. Set aside the money as soon as you receive as it. As soon as you receive it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the fifth one, which I think is a really important one, is to keep abreast of new opportunities even when you're swimming in work. So you need to keep pitching. Even if you've got truckloads of work on, you have to keep pitching. Um, and they also suggest a, uh, a US newsletter that you can sign up to, which is called Opportunities of the Week, uh, which, you know, puts a whole bunch of pitch calls out onto into one newsletter. Of course, in Australia, we have uh, Rachel's List, which I think is a great uh, tool for, for freelance writers just to keep abreast of, you know, freelancing opportunities, but also permanent, you know, casual kind of, you know, long-term gigs, all that kind of stuff. Mm. So... Um, anyway, I just thought it was worth uh, – the business of freelance writing is always worth considering when you are freelancing, so I just thought it would be worth uh, popping that into the show notes to have a look at. Yeah, definitely. And I think one good thing when you're freelancing, if you want some level of stability and um, some kind of regular income that you can rely on, is to find a gig that is one day a week or or it could be three days a week, it doesn't matter, but just something, yeah. but even yeah. one day a week is fine. And remember, it doesn't have to be one day a week in an office. You These days, um, you know, obviously you might have kids and it's just not uh, practical for you to do something one day a week in an office, but that's fine. But it might be one day a week from home. And it that's the opportunities for that sort of thing are getting more and more common as people mm-hmm. realise that, you know, people uh, work just as remotely, I mean, just as effectively remotely as long as they deliver the product. So mm-hmm. if you can find a gig where as long as you deliver the product and and they're happy with it and then they're happy to keep you on, then that is one way of making sure that that, is, that amount of income is definitely coming in. Because it's so true, there are you know uh, peaks and troughs in the freelance life and I found that it's it's all about filling the funnel and making sure that you are looking ahead and that comes down to keeping track really of the work you're doing and when the money is coming in as long as you keep track and you know when it's coming in then you can adjust your your work accordingly so yeah it's a good one I've got one other tip to add to that too yes um, and this is like a slightly strange one, but um, don't change your phone number and your email address. I have had the same email and phone number for about 25 yep. years, yep, which makes same. me a little bit tragic. But I got a mm. call last week from a guy that I last worked with four years ago who has moved to a different thing. A di- he's working for a different, you know, a different place. And he remembered that I had done some really great uh, sort of case study based stuff for yes. for a publication years ago, and he rang me to say, "Are you? <laughs> Is this I've still got you? This, I've got this truckload of work. Do you want it? Yeah. Mm. So it was, but it was like completely out of the blue. Four years later, and so I'm just saying that, um, yeah, it's it's worth keeping the same contact details because you just never know where people end up or what they yeah. might need. For sure. That's a good one. Okay, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwannabearwriter.com.au. Speaking of soyouwannabearwriter.com.au, if you actually go to soyouwannabearwriter.com.au slash book, yes, you'll be able to have a look at Al and my new book. And uh, it's called So You Want to Be a Writer. And um, it is going to be released on the 8th of June, but do check it out and register your interest uh, in case we release it earlier. So, so you want to be a writer.com.au slash book, and it's got lots of information and tips and advice and a blueprint on how you can be creative, even if you still have a day job, because you can certainly get started now. And we're very, very excited. Um, The actual copies 
landed yesterday, um, advanced copies. I don't so have mine yet. So I it's went, winging its way to Al. I know. So, you know, as well as being awesome when you asked me how I was, I am also on the edge of my seat with yes. anticipation. Yes, very, very exciting. All right, let's move on to uh, the competition this week. We have three copies of the book Getting There, a workbook for growing up by wildly popular Instagram star Mari Andrews. From the best-selling author of Am I There Yet comes a guided journal to help people record, with words and doodles, their own journey to adulthood. The 1.1 million fans of Mari's Instagram will be familiar with her popular illustrations that capture themes of heartbreak, career changes and self-discovery. This guided journal includes imaginative prompts and questions to help you do the same with pages to explore and document your own life's path and important moments. An ideal accompaniment for writers of all genres who enjoy visual memory exercises. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win. Entries close on the 27th of May. And if you're listening to this episode in the future, don't worry, still go to writercenter.com.au slash win and there'll be another competition for you to enter. All right, so Al. Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I'm awesome and I'm on the edge of my seat already, so yes. apparently I am. Yes, good, because it is spaghettification. Oh, seriously? Yes, yeah, spaghettification. It's a real word. It's in the Quarry Dictionary, so like spaghetti is in like the pasta that you eat and fication, spaghettification. Do you know what it means? <laughs> Making spaghetti of things? <laughs> no. Do you really think of that? <laughs> well, no, but I mean, yeah. Well, I can only imagine it has to do with you know thin things. That's all I can think. Thin yes. noodles. Yes. Well, long, yes. Thin noodles. Yeah. You might think that has something to do with long thin noodles or the art of making pasta, but it's not. It's far more scientific than that. Spaghettification. Because actually when I first uh, read it, I thought it was you know like what happens with your computer cords behind your desk. Like I thought that was spaghetti. Do you not have like cable ties? Oh, I would have thought you would have no. been the queen of a cable tie and those little things that guide mm. them into different directions and colour coded and twenty seven different charges. No? no, no, actually, I really should do that anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so spaghettification is the process of reducing something into long thin strips thanks to increasing gravitational force on it. Like what might happen if it fell into a black hole? Uh-huh. Right. Spaghettification uh-huh. is associated with a black hole. Right. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Okay. I know. I've got you're, nothing. You're All thrilled. Right. All right, I have fine. no response we'll to move that on. whatsoever. <laughs> we'll move on to uh, who is our writer in residence this week? Oh, my God. I'm a little bit excited because, me look too. at me, I've just, I've perked up. <laughs> I've perked up immeasurably. <laughs> took me into a black hole of depression, oh. but now I'm back because... <laughs> Um, our author, our writer in residence this week is none other than the fantastic Melina Marquetta. I know it's really exciting. So, um, I don't, well, she, she's the author of the Australian classic looking for Alibrandi. And I don't think that there are too many Australians who have grown up, you know, from the eighties onwards who have Mm. probably not come into contact with at least one of her books at some point. If our international listeners have not as yet had the pleasure of discovering Melina Marchetta, then may I please suggest that you look her up somewhere, ebook, whatever. Just grab it, grab a book um, if you can. She is a she writes YA mostly, um, but this book is uh, that we're talking about today is is more of an adult novel. It's based on some of her uh, YA characters who are now grown up, um, and I just really enjoyed the opportunity to discuss her process with her but also to get into how she builds her characters because I think that one of the things that people that have made her books so timeless and that allow her to her books to relate to a YA author today, uh, sorry, audience today, as much as they did, you know, 20, 25 years ago in a world that's changed where slang changes every five minutes and, you know, she was writing, you know, pre-social media, et cetera, and yet kids today still relate very much to her books and her characters and mm. it comes down to her characters. So... We kind of got into a bit of that and a whole range of other things. I hope you guys enjoy it. 
Melina Marchetta is the author of 10 novels, including the multi-award winning Looking for Alla Brandi, Saving Francesca, and the 2009 Michael L. Prince Award winner on The Jellicoe Road. In 2011, her novel The Piper's Son was long-listed for the Miles Franklin Award and short-listed for the Prime Minister's Literary Award. Her work has been made into feature films, translated into 18 languages, and published in 20 countries. Her latest novel, The Place on Dalhousie, is out now. Welcome to the program, Melina Marchetta. Thank you. I probably should have added one of Australia's most loved authors in there because I'm pretty <laughs> sure that that would be one of the things that you would often get. Now, we're going to talk a little minute for, about Looking for Alla Brandi, which was your debut novel all those years ago um, and is, of course, one that um, many Australians will have read, if not, you know, off their own bat, then probably studied at school at some point. Forced but... to read. <laughs> Forced to read. I know, and it was such a trauma. How did that book um, actually come to be published? In the, Like, how did you become a publisher? author in the first place with that debut novel? Oh gosh, it was such a long process um, of publishing, but I um, I started writing it when I think I was about 19 and I was just rewriting it, rewriting it um, until I got it to where I think it could be. And it was double the size it is now. Mm. And it was written in first and third person. Mm. So then I started, back in the day when there were yellow pages and white pages, I started reading up publishing companies and I would ask what, what is the procedure um, of getting published and they would say probably the same three things. has to be typed, it has to be double-spaced and um, it has to have a synopsis. Mm. And they'd always add, by the way, one maybe one or two in every 2,000 get accepted for publication if it's unsolicited mine was unsolicited so I just went through that journey lots of rejections and every time I got rejected I did rework it and rework it thinking you know I can do this I can do that and I still felt that once in a while with a rejection I found out a bit of information like the fact that more than one person had read it in that publishing company so I thought that was promising and finally when Penguin received it and they said they were seriously considering it. It was three years from then um, that it eventually was published. And going back to what I had said, it was double the size. It was pretty much, I would say, not cut in half, but it was certainly reduced to one year in her life rather than a couple of years. Mm. And I chose one voice, and that was the first person narrative rather than first and third. Interesting because I remember we had a conversation last year at the Shoalhaven Readers and Writers Festival as part of one of the sessions there and um, you said at the time that you, you know you weren't really a, a writer at school like it wasn't something that you um, you know necessarily did is that is do I remember that correctly or did I make that up it could be possible I made it up yes so I, but I did have I always had movies in my head like so I always told stories in my head I'd have whole feature films happening. I just didn't know how to put them down on paper. And whenever I did write something at school, I didn't really get a good mark because now when I think about it, most of it was still in my head. You know, when you read back yeah. your work and there are these little kind of footprints of words on the page, but you're reading it with what's on the page and what's in your head, whereas someone else will read it and they will just see what's on the page and there's a lot missing. And that's how I used to write. Um, so I, I didn't get encouragement at school, but for all the right reasons, I, I was—I certainly hadn't developed as a writer. Um, but I did—I did love reading, and I did love movies, and I did—you know—so I loved that world of make-believe. As I said, I just did not know how to put it onto paper or onto the screen. So, what made you decide at nineteen that you were going to write this novel? That you—you know—that was twice as long as it is now, and all of those various things. But what made you go? I'm actually going to be a writer. That's what I'm going to do. Well, well, I think I had decided before that, not that I was going to be a writer. I never decided I was going to be a writer. I decided I was going to write a novel. <laughs> and okay. there was a difference yeah. in there my head. Difference. because yeah. I probably thought, you know, I, it, it, actually I didn't even think, oh, my God, it's not going to get published one day. I just didn't even think of the publishing side of things. Mm. But I, I remember writing a lot when I was 16. I was in business college. And I learned to type, so it was so liberating to type rather than to um, write because I could never read my own handwriting. And I wrote a story, and this is interesting, 
for someone who lives in your area, but I wrote a story about a girl called Genevieve Tyson, and she lived in Kayama, oh. and she hung out with her friends um, on the beach. She came from a single-parent family. Her mum was raising her, and I think in that story she does meet her father for the first time. So you can see the resemblance, I suppose, to Alabrundi, but I had never in my life gone to Kayama, but I almost knew every single street. I sometimes hear a street in Kayama and my heart beats fast as if I know it, but I don't know it at all. But <laughs> it was back in the day when they had these um, tourist, you know, offices. So I used to get sent these batches of magazines, uh, not magazines, but brochures. Yeah, wow. uh, but obviously you're told, write what you know. And I didn't know about that world. I, I wasn't even a beach person, so I don't know why I had this teenager hanging out on the beach. But I think also there's a part of you that wants to write something completely different to who you are. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was about 19 and I had returned from Italy, so you know, just listening to a lot of the stories from there, that I thought, well, write what you know. Um, you know, that girl is going to come from the inner west of Sydney. She won't be called Genevieve Tyson, but she'll still be hanging out with her friends and she still meets her father for the first time and she still meets, she still lives with her single mum. Fantastic. And so it comes out and sort of almost became an, an instant classic overnight. Was that surprising to you, like the fact that, it, that it's been that really important key book that's been studied in schools for decades? Well, both then and now, yes, it was. Um, back then I was at university, I was in my second year, and I remember we used to scream hysterically every time we saw it written about um, or, it, you know, it was... We found out something about it. I remember when it was shortlisted, it was still that screaming, you know, oh, my goodness. Um, we, I don't do that, of course, anymore. Um, you don't? But it was I would just, be. <laughs> no, I just, but it, you don't know how we used to scream. Like, it was a bunch of friends and I, and we were just like, oh, my God, you know, it was that sort of stuff. Whereas now we're just a bit more cooler than that. Right. Um, but um, it was just more of, it, it wasn't, it was just a shock that people, I remember someone um, one of my friends said, people we don't know were reading this, you know, and that's that's how surprising it was, that it was people we didn't know were reading it. Mm. And I remember um, back in the day there were no phones or I mean, mobile phones, but there was a, a show on the um, ABC, it was a book show, and someone ringing me saying, your book's there. <laughs> they had a pile of books to read for, winter, sorry, for Christmas. So it was just that shock of, Oh, my goodness. Um, and I think the surprise now is that that book is 27 years old. Mm. And it's, it's, I mean, it's beloved by people who have grown up with it. But I'm always surprised by young people reading it because it doesn't have any social media in it. It is, to me, a story about the past. So I think, what are you relating to? And I think at the end of the day, we all are, we relate to identity and not mm. fitting in and who are we and you don't, I don't think you have to come back from an Italian background or from a, a private school background. It's that sense that all of us go through this sense of feeling as if they don't belong. Um, and, you know, it's just, um, it's been one of the most beautiful surprises of my life, but it still does surprise me. Well, I think the other thing that they're probably relating to, and I think it's one of the things that, um, that I find really lovely about your books um, is that the characters feel so real and convincing. Like it's a very, they're very, you know, three-dimensional people. They're people. They're not just sort of, you know, I'm moving people around a board here because I need to, I need things to happen. So I get the sense with, from that, that you spend a lot of time with them while you're writing. Like how do you go about building your characters? I think I, I spend a lot of time with them in my head right. rather than, that the building happens over time in my head. And in a strange way, and it may seem strange to hear this, but sometimes I wonder if it's because I actually don't know what to do with the construction of character that I end up writing so much about the real people, you know, in the in my world. Um, because I, I don't, I'm not saying that I'm not aware of what I do. I'm probably more aware these days. I'm I'm so aware of the less is more rule, I'm aware of the fact that dialogue has to reveal so much rather than being told so much in, you know, in another yeah. scene or in another scene. Um, but I think I keep on saying this because I've had to speak a lot about the latest novel. I just find that the most 
profound conversations I have are in the most unprofound places. I, I will be in coals <laughs> and I haven't bumped into someone for a long time. And in those five minutes, we just tell each other what's happened in the last year. And That's it so could true. have drama in it. it and it could be emotional and it could be, oh, my God, I can't believe you're telling me this. So I find that it's in those moments that I have the most profound situations. So when I write about the everyday, that's what I'm writing about. It's not something that I've read in a letter that someone has sent to me or sometimes it could be an email. But it's basically you go out the front and get your mail and you're having conversations with neighbours if you're close to your neighbours like I am. And once again, you're finding out, you know, that maybe someone across the road has just been diagnosed with cancer. So all these connections, and um, and I think that that's what I end up doing because maybe I don't know how to do it any other way. So, if you were to describe your writing process, like, is it is it that sort of bowerbird coming together of a whole range of different things that kind of happen, and people you met, and people you know, and that kind of amorphoses itself into a narrative is that and you said you do quite a lot of it in your head like how much of it is in your head before you even you know start to write a manuscript oh a lot and I think that that's an interesting um and only I mean probably only a writer could ask me that because those I don't think those people have been in my head for you know decades but situations have Mm. um fragments have and so when I'm writing now I am writing about those fragments. I I remember growing up with stories of people, you know, families fighting over a house. You know, that's that's an aspect of what I've just written. Mm. Or I remember stories. I remember my own. Um, you know, when your grandmother just knew everything you had done from the moment you left school to when you arrived <laughs> home before you, you arrived home. So all of that was, you know, placed in a part of my head. That is called, of course, memory, but what writers do is, you know, they take those memories and they use them at any time. They don't just belong to when that happened. And I think um, with my writing, there's a library there and it's not a fully formed one. The characters are never one person. I, I can't say, wow, I wrote about her, but I write about situations without realizing. And sometimes, of course, you write something and then you find out something about someone and you think, wow, that's so similar, but I didn't know about it. And I'll say to some, I'll say, please don't read the book now because it might be too painful for you. I I know someone's neighbor who's just gone through a very similar situation as one of my characters. So I think they'll love it, but not now. So, um, so do you feel like your process has changed over the years? Like, has it developed in different ways as you, as you said, you sort of learn, I guess, from that first manuscript that you wrote, you, you've now written 10. Um, you've obviously learned different um, things along the way, as you said, different techniques and things like that. Has it changed the way that you put words on paper, do you think? Not with the first draft, but mm-hmm. certainly the way I edit myself. Mm-hmm. I I would never, um, with Ella Brundy, I would have had no clue how to edit myself. Whereas I feel now, with um, especially from Francesca on, I sort of knew what I was doing. I was very aware of what I was doing. And so I would know, and I remember this distinctly with Francesca, the second novel, I started writing it. I had such a strong connection. I had written three chapters, but I had a really strong connection to it. And But there was some, I don't know, there was something that was missing. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know to continue on and maybe I knew that there was interest in it so I thought well maybe it will be something that my I don't know my editor will work out and what I did instead was I restarted it I didn't change really anything at all I think I changed her name but I changed the tense and for me that changed everything and so it's things like that that I I do when something's not working I try to solve the problem myself and it's not quite, what's not working isn't a, a, it's not a writer's block. It might be that I'm not feeling that connection to it. Mm. So I think that to change tense or to, to change something from 
first to third person or vice versa sometimes gives me um, a bit more of a feel. Mm. And I think, okay, that's, that's the way I'm going. And once again, you know, my dialogue, I try very hard not to overwrite. And that's something that I did learn from script writing because, you know, when I wrote the Ella Brundy film script. Yep. So it's just, it's, it's kind of editing yourself knowing you're going to go through a big edit with an editor, but I do a lot more self-editing than I, than I did with the first novel. So by the time my editor has it, I don't think once I've been asked to do a structural edit for some, for some reason, I don't know, except in film, um, but that's a different structure. But with a novel, I've never had to do a structural edit, and that scares, a structural edit scares me the most. Wow. So. That's um, yeah. that's a fairly impressive record, not to have had to do a yeah. structural edit. I'm impressed. I, I know, and and even to a certain degree with on the Jellico Road, which was a very difficult, mm. um, structurally put together novel, but I still felt that I knew what it was in my head. There wasn't a lot. What I do need to do is flesh things out. I I haven't. Um, I have to work on backstory because. You know that that isn't clear. So it's it's about my editor asking me the right questions, and once she does or makes the right observations, I think, oh, I know what to do now, and I will go in that direction. So it actually took quite a few years to write your second novel. Saving Francesca came out like what ten ten years? Eleven years later. Eleven years. But so, I, but I wasn't working on it. For well, that was my question: later. Were you writing that the whole time, or or was it? No. Yeah, you were because I distinctly remember when I started writing it. It was in um, October 2001, and it came out in 2003. So that's I distinctly know that that's how long yeah. it took me. I was teaching. I was writing the film script. I wrote a failed version of my third novel that oh. I ended up putting away, um, thinking I'd never pick it up again. And then I did after you know 13 years, and it was became something a bit different to what I imagined it in the first place. Yeah. So it's just, it was, I was very busy, but I think I was scared to write that second novel. Mm. Uh, I just, I didn't know what was, actually I do know what was expected of me. It was to write the same sort of story and I didn't know how to do that because I didn't know how I did it in the first place. So <laughs> That's always a problem. <laughs> yeah, whereas I know, I, I've known from then on, from Francesca on, I've known what I've done, but with Ella Brundy, of course, I remember aspects of the edit. Of course I do, but I do believe that that novel was written from the heart. Mm, definitely. Do you, are you a writer who writes every day? I do, and I write a lot of rubbish in a way. I, I, I think it's very important not to write rubbish, <laughs> um, but I say to people that I write every day, that would be my advice because when you go back to it the next day, I I tend to get rid of 80% of it, but there's 20% that's gold. It's mm. what I need. So for me, I try not to be a perfectionist. I'm not a perfectionist. Um, I, I become a perfectionist because I go over my work a hundred times, but I just can't come out with something fantastic from you know, the first draft. So mm -hmm. what I do is I just write and whatever um, survives that next day, that's I, I take it from there. Okay, well, that makes sense. Now let's talk about your new novel, The Place on Dalhousie, because we're actually revisiting some characters in that. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that book? Well, it, it's about two women who refuse to move out of a home they both believe belongs to them and it, it does belong to both of them. One lives upstairs and the other one lives downstairs. They don't speak to each other. And it's about the community they create within that home without realising and the community they create outside that home. And the character who comes back into it comes from Saving Francesca. And his name's Jimmy Haler and he becomes the third narrator of this story. He is as disconnected as these two women but they end up in, in the same home and he almost is the person who metaphorically stands on that stairs and, and brings them together. 
to a certain degree. Okay, and why did you why did you want to revisit Jimmy? Why did Jimmy come back? I don't think Jimmy ever went away, <laughs> and I know he wasn't present in the Piper Sun, which is the second. I, I call them companion novels. They're not. It's not a trilogy. I either call it a companion novel or in my head. I call it, you know, the Inner West Trilogy, but that's just pretentious in my head. <laughs> but um, when the, the gang came back in the Piper Sun when they were 21, Jimmy didn't, and I didn't force him. I just didn't know where he was, mm. and I was not going to force characters back just for the sake of me or even my readership. So he just, um, he was lost. He had just nicked off really because, you know, his grandfather, I think his only um, the relative he had lived with had died, so he just nicks off. But I really wanted that absence to mean something. It wasn't it wasn't just, oh, he's not in the book. It was you know, people felt that absence. Mm. And as a result I got asked about him all the time and once again I thought, Well, you're not going to write about this character just because your readership wants you to. He has to he has to come with a pretty good story. And in a way they the three of them came together. The three of them in that house came together. Mm. As soon as I met Rosie in my head, I knew she was connected to Jimmy. Um so I don't know who came first, but um of course you can say Jimmy came first, but in this book they all came together. Hmm. And the one rule I made to myself, especially with Rosie, who lives upstairs, and Martha, who lives downstairs, one's the stepdaughter and one's a stepmother um, of someone who has um, tragically died, I, I thought to myself, don't take sides. So I, you know, in writing this, I was not going to be on one person's side. <laughs> So it's That's kind of, a, I'm very bossy about that with them. It's like, uh, it's interesting because you're really like you've got a fairly fairly fine line to tread there if you're not taking sides at all. Nope. Sometimes it might seem. Sometimes people mistake empathy for a character um, with taking sides, but you know, so there might be a chapter where you think, oh, she's on this person's mm-hmm. side, but you know, of course, there's there's so many sides to a story, so. I just wanted the readership to understand what both these women were going through. They were grief-stricken. Yeah. They had both at different ages in their life, one at my age and one as a 21-year-old, had in you know, years before lost their mothers. And I think at any age, it is just such a, um, a profound loss. Mm. Um, so it was just, um, I, I loved, I have to say, I loved them both dearly and I was very protective um, over them, so I was not interested in a reader saying to me, "Oh, I, I, I love Kisses." I thought, "I don't care, I don't care. I love them both." <laughs> <laughs> I am Switzerland. I am not taking sides. Um, <laughs> all right, so it's actually not your first novel for adults. So um, when yeah, 2016, I think it was, "Tell the Truth, Shame the Devil" came out, and that was heralded as your first foray into adult crime and a change in direction. Um, did, was that a conscious decision to write a crime novel at that time or was it just how the story unfolded? I feel as if I don't make conscious decisions and I probably <laughs> should. Um, <laughs> I feel as if I should be a lot more, uh, what's the word, in control of, of what I do. The, the answer is yes and no. I I remember thinking... I remember knowing what I wanted to write about. I knew that I had to set it in parts of England and France because I needed the channel. I needed countries that were in a way connected but weren't. And I remember with my other novels, I've always said this about my novels, most of them, especially my YA, are about young people where the adults play such an important role in their lives. Mm. Whereas this one, I was very much aware of the fact that it was about older people where young people played a very important role in their lives. So I knew that there would be that shift. But with regards, I didn't know, and I know this sounds strange, but I actually didn't know what the genre was. And I remember sending my agent the first draft and I asked her, what do you think the genre is? And she said, um, "She said, I think it's a literary crime novel. Yeah. 
Um, so, so, you know, that's, um, that's how it was in my head for a while. But even in the editing, I was told quite often, by the way, this is a crime novel. He has to solve the crime because I had this very reactive rather than proactive detective type yeah. who was, you know, discovering what was happening because he was just, you know, he had such empathy for people that they'd tell him things. But I had to remember genre in the, the rewrites and I had to make sure that he was more proactive in the solving of, you know, what happened yeah. on that, that bus. So um, so that's when I was constantly reminded of, you know, genre, genre, don't forget the genre. We know that you can write good family stories and this is, to me, you know, a family saga. Yeah. But it is, it is a crime novel, so don't forget that. And is that a character, is Bishore, Bishore? a character that we will see again? Oh, look, you know, I wish and I hope, but he's he's not, um, he hasn't, or he has kind of come back. But once again, I don't know what his story is. And because I love writing such personal stories, I felt that I wrote his. So right. it's, it's all out there. Um, so the one thing I'm very much aware of, and I don't want to put him through any more pain. He's gone through enough pain. So <laughs> It will seem like such a cliche to just, you know, um, just dump some more on him. But I feel as if it could be about other characters, him still being such an important part, but is it about someone else's um, backstory? Mm. And, there, you know, there was a character in it, Noor, who is one of the main characters who's in jail, and she's still in jail when this story ends. And I always find her so fascinating. There's more to her story. And, you know, even people he went to school with who were in whatever they're in, whether it's MI5 or, you know, I think they never really divulged who they worked for. But I was interested in them as well. So um, I never say no, but I I never know where the next book comes from. And, um, I mean, it just, I'm hoping so much they'll come back because I, I almost know how I would end, if it was a Noor story, I almost know how I would end that ah, novel. See. I almost so know the starting last to line. form up. So, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's, once again, a, a conversation I had with someone um, while I was touring around with this book in a bookstore and we were talking about, this is a very morbid thing, but dying and having not finished a novel and we were talking about, um, that and someone told me a story that I thought, oh my god, that's so beautiful, and I put it away in the in the library in my head, and I haven't forgotten it. So, yeah. um, so <sighs> what are some of the sorts of things that you do to promote your work? Like, are you active online, or is most of your work done promotion work done just around when a book comes out, and you go out and you know talk to people and go to festivals and do that kind of stuff? Yes, I feel as if I come out of into the land of the living every three years <laughs> and <laughs> the rest of the time is spent on the PNF, you know, in your daughter's school. Um, <laughs> but um, the, the what I do, I, I have a blog and I don't blog, but when I've got to something to say, I will blog and that goes to, um, it goes to Twitter and it goes to Facebook. Right, okay. So and you do I, have I some like basic stuff set control. up. Yeah. I, I do have basic stuff set up. I just don't um, – I don't really engage without just pressing that button. But I've just recently – and it's, it's a private account um, that you can definitely follow me. But I've just recently discovered Instagram, <laughs> and I love people's photos yeah. so much. So you're stalking. And um, <laughs> I just love – that's one thing I miss not being – really engaged in in Facebook because you know it's not that I'm against social media it gives me anxiety Mm. and there's enough things in the world to give me anxiety so I have to I just get anxious I get anxious if I find out something awful that's happened you know by this thing that just so I just I keep away from it and it's what I do like about Instagram that I miss about Facebook you know my whole in my entire extended family pretty much on Facebook and they'll talk about people's photos and even people who are close to me, my sisters know more about them 
than I do because I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> I know, um, but I, I, I love Instagram because, I, as I said, I, I feel as if I've got more of a control and I just love looking at people's photos, including Reese Witherspoon's photos, I oh, think. Oh, my God. <laughs> you and Reese. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> yeah, so just, um, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll finish up today um, and thank you very much for your time. But we always finish up with our three top tips for writers. So, Melina Marquetta, what are your three top tips for aspiring writers? I would say write every day, mm-hmm. as I said before, because you will find something to salvage the next day, even if it's a line. Mm-hmm. The other is, um, make sure that you have a couple of re- reasons for a piece of dialogue um, and it could be it pushes the story forward or it tells you something about the relationship between the two people speaking or it tells you about the character himself or herself. Mm-hmm. And um, the third is not to solve problems in front of a computer screen. Go for that walk. Um, drive, take your dog for a walk, um, you know, lie in bed at night and solve the problems because I think that if you're trying to solve problems in front of a screen, you'll get disheartened and, and give up. So, Great tips. A couple of new ones there that we don't get all the time, so that's brilliant. Thank you so much for that. Best of Thank luck you. with your new novel. Um, I'm sure it is also amazing. I have not as yet read it, but it is on my list of things to read, so that's always a good start, right? <laughs> Um, and we will um, keep an eye out for you on for your random forays onto Facebook and Twitter so we can keep up with your news. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our popular course, Creative Writing Stage 1, is the perfect way to unlock your creativity and explore the world of writing. You only need a couple of hours a week and you'll learn how to create memorable characters, believable dialogue and captivating plots, all in a supportive environment in this five-week online course. Whether your goal is to write a bestseller or simply tell better stories, learn at home with your very own tutor giving you personal feedback each week. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash creative writing. Wow, there you go, Melina Marquetta. And of course, I'm a big fan of her book, so absolutely fantastic to have her on the show. Very enjoyable experience all round. Mm. So we are now at the end of this week's episode almost. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Um, well, I've got a few things on this week. One of the things I'm doing today is drawing the winner of the uh, Mapmaker Chronicles giveaway that I ran oh, on yes. my Facebook page. I um, Yes, I was, I've, I've, I'm trying to clean out my office. I've been informed by my the rest of my family that eight million books in a study is not a good idea. So I'm <laughs> sort of gradually offloading various things. But um, I'm giving away a trilogy, the US editions of the Mapmaker Chronicles, the first three books, which is exciting. And if you missed out on that, keep an eye on my Facebook page and my other social media because I do have a couple of other sets to give away, which I will do in the coming weeks. Um, so I'm doing that. I'm heading to Sydney for some uh, school talks again this week. So I've got, you know, I'm on a bit of a, as I said, I think we talked about this, I'm on a bit of a roll with those at the moment. So I've, I've got another full day um, at St Giles in Waverley, I believe I'm off to this week, which is exciting. But I'm also very excited because I'm going to the Sydney Theatre Company on the Saturday to see Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, which oh, I'm quite looking wow. forward to. With Hugo, yeah, great. Oh, um, Hugo Weaving. So I'm looking forward to that. So I'm, I'm having a creative date and I'm doing some school talks and I'm just generally getting on with it. And my writer book with Al is progressing nicely. We have yes. rolled over the 10,000 word mark and in, we're now into, oh, well, let's put it this way, I'm getting into hairy territory now because I don't, don't know what's happening. But anyway, we'll see what happens. Okay. What about you? Wow. What are you doing? What am I doing? Okay, well, what's on my mind right now? So... I go to make a cup of tea this morning and I have a kettle that you put on the stove and the mm-hmm. stove does not work like at all. So I have not been able to have a hot drink. So Goodness. I have to go and buy a kettle. Okay. That's, a kettle or a really stove? Tough. Well, and a stove, but the stove is going to take considerably longer. So in the meantime, I have to go buy, I can just get like a cheap one from the supermarket, I think. 
don't you know can. how else to. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> that's my excitement for the week. <laughs> I don't my know how so you're going to cool. cope with that. <laughs> All right, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And you'll find the show notes at soyouwannabearider.com.au. And, of course, remember, we would all love to see you at Vivid on the 8th of June for So You Want to Be a Writer Live. Live. Um, yep, live. Get all your live tickets. all the time. That's right. Me and Al and uh, crime author Candace Fox and historical fiction author Pamela Hart. Uh, it's going to be a whole lot of fun at the Museum of Contemporary Art at 11 a.m. on the 8th of June. Go to writercenter.com.au slash vivid ideas. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.